Good morning, Christ Paz. Our scripture reading today is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of God. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for, th- for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in a series in First and Second Samuel. These are two Old Testament books that tell Israel's story as they transition from a ragtag confederation of tribes to a united monarchy. And if you were here last week, remember that we looked at God's sovereignty, how God is able to work even our rejection of him right into his plan to save us and lead us. That's how sovereign God is, which is a great comfort. But we might ask, if God is so sovereign, why doesn't he just bring his kingdom in fullness now? Like, why is the world still such a mess and full of so many scary threats? Why is there still so much trouble out there and in here? See, these are really big questions and hard questions, and I wish I could tell you that our passage contains all the answers, that by the end of this sermon, we'll have it all figured out. 
But no, I'm sorry to say our passage doesn't answer these questions. Instead, it invites us to live in this tension between God's promises and their fulfillment in a particular kind of way. When we find ourselves fearful and facing trouble, it invites us to adopt a posture of patient trust as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises to us. How does it extend this invitation? Well, it kind of in a strange roundabout way. First, it shows us a sickness, a sickness that is as old as humanity. And then it points us toward the cure. And so let's look at each of these and I think we'll, we'll see the invitation. So first, what's, what's the sickness? Inpatient disobedience. That's the sickness. And it's old. It's an old sickness. I mean, we see it first in the Bible's story very early on in the third chapter when that snake shows up in the garden. Do you remember that? Listen again to that story. This is from Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, so so what has happened? Uh, God told Adam and Eve not to eat from a particular tree, but now the snake says, actually, if you eat from the tree, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. This is what the snake says. But notice the implication. The implication according to the snake, is that in withholding this fruit from you, God doesn't want you to be like God. God doesn't want you to know good and evil. Now, is that true? Probably not. Never trust a talking snake. In fact, we've already seen that God does want humanity to be like God. He created humanity in his own image, in his own likeness. He gave them the responsibility of ruling over and caring for his world. That's godlike. We can assume that he wants them to be wise, knowing good from evil. Like once we have the whole the, the Bible's whole story in view, we learn that God's plan is actually to form humanity into the image of Christ, who is the very wisdom of God. So the snake here isn't offering to Adam and Eve anything that God hasn't already given or promised. He's just suggesting a shortcut a quick fix. Why wait for maturity when you can have it all now? Why learn wisdom when you can eat a piece of fruit and have it instantly? Why do the relational work of walking with God and growing in his likeness when it's all here for the taking? 
just pick the fruit and enjoy. So that's what they do. They try to get what God wants for them, but without God, by going their own way apart from him. And you see, that's the sickness. Impatient disobedience. Adam didn't really trust God. He acted as though God's plan for his flourishing was insufficient or maybe just too slow. It wasn't giving him God-likeness and wisdom as quickly as he wanted it or not in the way he wanted it. And so in his impatience, he disobeyed. He didn't allow time and space for God to do his good work. He acted as though God would not act. What about our passage? You know, it's so interesting. In chapter 11, which we skipped over, Saul defeated the king of the Ammonites. And that king's name is Nahash. In Hebrew, it means snake or serpent. An attentive reader of the Bible story might recall God's promise way back in Genesis 3 that one day a son of the woman would crush the snake's head. And now wonder, well, is this a clue? Is Saul the one? Have we finally arrived at the king who will crush the serpent's head? Will Saul be the snake crusher, the redeemer of humanity? Or is he just humanity? Is he Adam all over again? Where our passage picks up, Saul and his son Jonathan are at war with the Philistines, and they win the first battle, but in response, the Philistines muster a giant army and are preparing to retaliate. And so God's people are experiencing a gap between God's promises and their fulfillment. Remember, God has made promises to his people, promises of land and blessing, promises that they would be a great nation. But now Israel is beset by enemies. They're in the land, but the land is always under threat. And whereas God had promised that Israel would be a great nation, as innumerable as the grains of sand, here we're told that it's the Philistines whose troops were like sand on the seashore in multitude. So the question is, how will God's people respond to the reality that the kingdom hasn't come in fullness? That God's promises are yet to be fulfilled? And how do we respond when we're facing this kind of real trouble? When we're waiting for God to show up? See, in our passage, we see the sickness of impatient disobedience, and we see it on display in different ways, both passive and active. Uh, Listen again to verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. See, they've gathered together for battle, but instead, they're acting like people who are already dead. They're hiding themselves in holes and in tombs. Does this solve their problem? When they bury themselves, do the Philistines just disappear? Does their trouble go away? No. But see, this is one symptom of the sickness of impatient disobedience. Hiding. This is one way we act as though God will not act. We take our lives into our own hands and we hide ourselves away. And I wonder, family, are there ways that you're hiding now? You're just hiding. 
hoping that the troubles will, will pass away. Well, related to hiding is retreating. Listen again to verse 7. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, if you remember the biblical story and its history, of God, the history of God's people, you might pick up on the significance here. Remember, God had delivered the Israelites from slavery through the wilderness and then across the Jordan into the promised land. And now in their fear, God's people are reversing their liberation. They're moving back towards slavery. They're crossing the Jordan out of the promised land and, and, and retreating. They are, in a sense, giving up on the promises of God and saying they'd rather go on their own. And remember in the story, this isn't new. If you'll remember back back when they were in the wilderness, God's people said they'd rather go back to Egypt than follow God to the promised land. Even though they were dying under the hard yoke of slavery, at least they had some sense of control. In the wilderness... They had to depend on God every single day for their provision and security. Daily, God would give them bread from heaven. But they weren't satisfied with God's plan for feeding them. And they grumbled. They said they'd rather go back to Egypt than enter the land that God, was, that God had promised. They say, let's go back. Let's continue to live as people who haven't been redeemed. And I wonder, family, what about us? when we're faced with the reality that God's kingdom hasn't come in fullness, when we're facing troubles, when we're hard-pressed, how are we tempted to, to turn back, to return to slavery, to go back to our other little K kings? Karl Barth sees these passive forms of impatient disobedience, as hiding and retreating, as sloth. He says, quote, it's a refusal of our reality as it confronts us in Jesus Christ, close quote. See, when we go this way, it's like we don't want to embrace the reality of, of our new creation in Jesus. <clears throat> Here we are, people who have been rescued and given new life, all as pure gift. <laughs> We've been given the very life of Jesus Christ. He is our reality. He is our life. But then we face trouble and threats from without and from within, and we feel unprotected and insecure, and we say, I don't know, maybe Egypt wasn't so bad. Maybe living with my sin is ultimately more comfortable than following my Savior. And so we hide and we retreat. All of that is a part of this patient, this impatient disobedience. We see another symptom when we come to uh, saw. It's a more active symptom. It's rushing. Saul had gathered his troops to confront the Philistines, and he started waiting the seven days. Now, why was he waiting? Because back in chapter ten, verse eight, Samuel, and presumably God through Samuel, had asked him to wait. Wait seven days, Samuel said, and then I'll come offer the sacrifices before the battle. So here we are, and Saul is waiting. And as he waits, he watches the Philistine army get bigger and bigger, and he watches his own army get smaller and smaller and smaller. 
See, maybe he thought that while he was waiting, things would get better and better. That's what we always hope will happen when we wait, that things will improve. But no, when Saul waits, things get worse and worse. Well, he waits the full seven days, and Samuel still hasn't shown up. And so Saul figures he's on his own. It's up to him. He goes ahead and he offers the sacrifices and he prepares for battle. See, he tries to do for himself what God has already promised to do for him. He takes the fruit from the tree and he eats. And right then, God shows up walking in the garden and asks, Where are you? What have you done? No, not exactly. It's Samuel who shows up. Verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I mean, talk about bad timing. And Samuel asks, what have you done? And Saul says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. No, not exactly. He says, it was the people's fault. They were scattering. And it was your fault. You were so late. And it was the Philistines' fault. They, they, there were so many of them. That's why I took the fruit and ate. Well, you see, the point, any hopes of Saul being the snake crusher end right here. He is not Adam's redeemer. He's just another Adam. Samuel tells Saul that he has acted foolishly, and that's exactly right. In the Old Testament, the foolish pers person is the one who lives as if there is no God. That's what Psalm 14.1 tells us, that, that in his heart, the fool says, there is no God. See, it's not that the fool is an atheist. It's that the fool lives as if God doesn't matter, that the fool acts as if God will not act. And so the fool hides or retreats or rushes instead of embracing a posture of patient trust. And so Samuel finds himself in a long line of fools, stretching all the way back to Adam. And if we're honest, we'll say that that line stretches from Adam through Samuel and past Samuel to us. For who among us has not hidden or retreated or rushed? Who among us has not taken our lives into our own hands? Who among us is really consistently content to live by the bread we're given daily? Who among us hasn't taken fruit from the tree? Remember, family, this is Israel's story, but it's also our story. Impatient disobedience is Israel's sickness, which means it's also ours. What would it look like to adopt a posture of patient trust? Patience. You know, the Greek word for patience is makrothumia, which literally means long-tempered. In some older translations, it gets translated as long-suffering. Sometimes it's translated as forbearance. See, patience, it means um, being slow to anger. It means not jumping to judgment. It means not rushing. It means being able to endure opposition and even suffering without retaliation, without revenge, without hiding, without retreating. It means putting up with the failings of others without irritation. 
See, patience doesn't hide or retreat or rush. Patience trusts God to be God. Patience gives God time and space to do his good work. Patient trust would lead Adam to pass on the fruit. I'll get all the godlikeness and knowledge of good and evil God wants for me in good time. Scram, snake. Patient trust would lead, would lead God's people to stay with their king rather than hiding and retreating. It would give God time and space to do his good work. Trust that God is still God, even in the face of so much trouble. Patient trust would lead Saul to wait a little longer. Just a little longer. Samuel said he'll be here. He'll be here. But no. Instead, Adam and God's people and their king all take their lives into their own hands. It's like they're all impatient with God. And we are too. Why does he tarry? Why does he delay? Why hasn't he made good on all his promises? Why does it still seem like evil is going unchecked? Why is there so much pain and injustice and oppression? Why aren't my kids doing what I want them to do? Why is my church so messy? Why haven't I become the person I want to become? I wonder, where do you feel the temptation to hide and to retreat and to rush? Where are you tempted to take your life into your own hands? Where do you feel God inviting you to adopt a posture of patient trust, to wait? Well, so that, that's our sickness, and it's an old sickness, the sickness of impatient disobedience. And now let's ask, what's the cure? What's the cure? Well, it's, it's not a surprise cure. <laughs> the cure is patience. Only it's not your patience. It's God's patience. You remember in 1 Corinthians, we read that love is patient. Love is patient. Which means that God is patient. Just think of how patient he is. Creation itself, in a way, is an act of patience. In creating, God decides to give time and space for his love to do its good work. I suppose he could have just united us with himself in some kind of abstract spiritual union for all eternity from the very beginning. But instead he created, he made a world distinct from himself and he gives the world time and space to be the world, to be really distinct from God. And God doesn't bring it all to an end when sin and evil enter the picture, when the snake shows up and Adam eats from the tree God bears with the hurting world. And that means God's suffering. It means God's long suffering. It's worth remembering, family, that all sin is in the first place sin against God. You know, when someone wrongs you or me, we're never the only ones wronged. God is wronged. And he experiences the wrong done against us in ways that are deeper and more eternal than we can comprehend. He bears the suffering of the world. God takes our suffering and he makes it his own. He really bears it. And it is long suffering. 
because he doesn't rush to judgment. I mean, when scripture says that God is slow to anger, it really means that God is slow to anger. Just think of his long suffering with you. When you sin, does God rush in to judge and condemn you? Does he bring the hammer of justice down on you? No, he doesn't. In fact, you have breath in your lungs and blood pumping through your heart right now because God is upholding you and sustaining you by the word of his power. He is literally giving you time and space so that his love can do its good work in your life. See, God is so patient. We mentioned this last week, but sometimes his patient love even lets us take our life and run away and squander it in the far country. Love lets us have that much time and space. I mean, he's the Lord of the universe, but he doesn't manipulate us or control us. He allows us to make decisions, even decisions that aren't good for us. He allows us to fail. God allows us in his patience to be impatient. Sometimes maybe we wish that God wouldn't be so patient. We get impatient with his patience. We wish he'd give us less time and space. You know, the Psalms are filled with impatience with God's patience. How long, O Lord? How long will I be afflicted by this addiction? How long will my marriage be troubled? How long will I have to go without a decent night's sleep? How long will my body hurt? How long will my health be poor? How long will I be be beset by enemies? How long will I be accused unjustly? How long, O Lord, until you bring your kingdom in all its fullness? But the God who is love is patient. Scripture tells us he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God is giving space and time for love to do its work. And so in our passage in verse 14, we read this, Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God clarifies that Samuel will not be the king who Israel needs, but God doesn't abandon his plan to provide for his people. He keeps giving time and space for love to do its good work. And so he promises a man after his own heart. And who is that? Well, immediately in the narrative, it's David. But David, we know, is just another pointer to another king, a great king, the true king. A king who never took his life into his own hands, but who always trusted the father. He always gave love, time, and space to do its good work. In the face of trouble, he doesn't hide or retreat or rush. He sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and he moves forward one step at a time, knowing what awaits him there. 
we're sharing communion together today, and, and all of this is what we remember every time we gather around this table. We remember our tendency to reach out and take from the tree, to take our lives into our own hands, to hide and to retreat and rush in the face of trouble. But we also remember that God is patient. God is long-suffering. God deals with our impatient disobedience, not by rushing to judge and condemn us, but by taking our judgment and condemnation onto himself, by suffering, by bearing our sin and bearing it away as far as the East is from the West. And so family, see that God makes time and space for you here at the table. And you can come and you can reach out your hand and you can take not as an act of impatient disobedience, but as an act of patient trust. The king is here. The kingdom is coming. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.